Uh, comrades and friends, hello. Uh, Rob here in the Bunker Studio. Uh, Super producer Carl is monitoring from a secure remote location, and this is the Highlands Bunker Podcast. Uh, our guest today is Steve Paxton. Uh, while I don't uh, usually use the publishers about the author bio as an introduction, this one was too good to, uh, to pass on, so I'm going to read it. Uh, Steve Paxton uh, is the author of Unlearning Marx, Why the Soviet Failure Was a Triumph for Marx. In addition to an academic career culminating in doctoral research with G.A. Cohen at Oxford, Steve has worked on building sites and embedding shops, been a PHP programmer and a t-shirt designer, been employed, self-employed, unemployed, blue-collar, white-collar, and no-collar. He combines the experiences of this varied career with his academic background to bring unique insights to the printed page. I am pleased to have Steve Paxton on the Highlands Bunker podcast. Hello, Steve. Hi. Hi. Glad to be here. Ha, it's wonderful to meet you. Um, so we were scheduled to speak uh, uh, with each other last week, uh, but you needed to rearrange for what is possibly the most Highlands Bunker podcast appropriate reason. A uh, middle-aged white guy, Marxist, injures himself playing football in the park. So I, I, can, I can definitely relate to that. Um, how, are, how are you feeling? How's, how's the back? Uh, good. Yep. Um, it's getting better. I, I put it out. I mean, I, I put it out a few years ago and it's just, I think it's just a week after that. So uh, reoccurring thing. I'm back for a few days on heavy painkillers, but I'm uh, up and about again now. Won't be able to play football again for a few more weeks. But. Yeah. Well, we'll tell people it was a, it was a goal saving tackle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> however it went down. It was something like that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, I'm going to, uh, Carl, if you can bring this clip up, uh, I'll explain it. And I think we'll either use this as the cold open and then just run me explaining to you what it is, or we'll just run it now. Um, so this is a guy, Chris Matthews. Uh, he's like a, a, a boomer generation. Uh, he was a political operative and staffer um, in the 70s and 80s, and then he just became like a TV pundit. But he's uh, he's just... The best way I can describe him is just an old-school liberal guy, um, you know, very centrist, new labor, I guess you would sort of say. Um, but the night that Bernie Sanders won the New Hampshire primary and had some momentum in our presidential primary process, which unfortunately fizzled out at the end, but he had, won a, he had, had a few primary victories and he had a lot of political momentum, and uh, this was Chris Matthews' uh, comments uh, soon after, in that evening that it happened. Believe of Castro and the, and, the, and the Reds had won the Cold War. There were the executions in Central Park, and I might have been one of the ones getting executed. And certain other people would be there cheering, okay? So I have a problem with people who took the other side. I don't know who Bernie, Bernie supports over these years. I don't know what he means by social. One week it's Denmark. We're going to be like Denmark. Okay, that's harmless. That's, a, that's basically a capitalist country with a lot of good social welfare programs. Denmark is harmless. It's pretty clearly in the Denmark is category. He? Yeah. Are you sure? How do you know? Did he tell you that? Well, I mean, that's what he says, and that's what his agenda calls for, right? Yeah, yeah, He's no, not calling no, no, for no, anything. Let's, let's see. Let's figure that one out. A, well, we haven't seen a, a campaign yet where video of him praising the other version right. of Castro and, and has been used. Well, but that will be used. That's a question of how, seen how that plays. Of how tangible, what, what the effect that has. In well, what does he think of Castro? That's a great question. What did you think of Fidel Ismo? We all thought he was great when he first, I could cheer like mad for him okay. when he first went in. And hold then on. he became a communist and started shooting okay. every one of his enemies. Okay, hold, so, hold, hold, those, thoughts on the Cuban, hold those thoughts He's on Cuban revolution. I have to go back to the spin room and Democratic presidential candidate. So I thought that was a, a pretty good way to uh, to sort of introduce um, introduce the idea of the communist death toll myth, um, the body count game, whatever you want to call it. Um, the first thing you do is sort of debunk or, or, or dispel that uh, because it's an important step before you can start even talking about the historical conditions. Um, so can you talk about that a little bit, uh, how, you, uh, how you go about uh, sort of debunking that and... Um, and what comparisons you make? Yeah, sure. I, I think um, so. I I think it's, a, it's as you say. You've got to get that out of the way before you can have any serious discussion about the Soviet Union. You've got to get it out of the way because we're so used to um, these right-wing talking heads all over the media. Whatever they're complaining about this week, it's just that's that's socialism. 
which is Marxism, which is the Soviet Union or Castro, and that is uh, 100 million dead or 200 million dead, just make up a number, times it by 10 million, and, you know, that's the end of the debate, and it shuts down debate. And it's, it's um, although, you know, in a, in, a, in a sensible world where people actually thought about things and, and people had some kind of, um, you know, reasonable uh, media and, and that kind of thing, then this wouldn't this wouldn't even be a debate because it's it's so uh, it's, it's such nonsense. But it's I didn't feel like I could completely ignore it or just say, well, I'm not going to talk about that because it's so stupid in the book. So I had to kind of deal with it and get that out of the way in the first place. And um, you know, it's it, it's uh, you know, when has Bernie ever <laughs> ever um, called for stringing people up in Central Park or made any kind of noises along those lines? You know, and. He may have talked about, I don't really know, he may have talked about the achievements in Cuba that, you know, literacy has improved and healthcare has improved and that kind of thing. Um, to, to argue that there, have been, that, that there were no benefits to any regime calling itself socialist or communist in the 20th century is just absurd. There's, you know, um, if you look at the Soviet Union in, say, you know, 1960 compared to, or even during Stalin's life, say 1950, compared to America in 1950, there are a lot of things you can point at and say, well, they didn't have this and they, they, they were restricted in this way and everything else. If you compare the Soviet Union to the czarist regimes that, that it replaced, then the political oppression was kind of on a par with that, the, the amount of, um, you know, the press censorship and that kind of thing. The... One way you could look at this in a, in an octa- you know, and this isn't, you don't have to be a Marxist to think this, you just have to be somebody who can, is capable of looking at things objectively, is that you can look at um, the, some of the stuff that went on in the Soviet Union that um, American conservatives um, call out as being, and we should all call out as, but you know, there's, there's, there's no doubt there's, that, that there was stuff that went on there that, that we would, isn't how we would want a, a future socialist society to behave. Um, but you could say a lot of that is is it's a continuation of the um, Russian political culture that, that the Soviet Union inherited from the Tsars. A lot of the, a lot of the institutions were just replaced. They replaced the personnel. They didn't necessarily replace. You know, the, there was a secret police under the Tsars, and that continued with different people running it under the Soviet regime. These were not, and these, you know, that wasn't the only place. If you look at what Britain was doing in South Africa in the early part of the 20th century, or what Britain was doing in Kenya in the 1950s, or what America has been doing all over the world at different times, these um, th- these things that, that happened in the Soviet Union suddenly, when you put them into any kind of a context, then they suddenly don't look quite as as dramatic. But I think there's a, there's a specific thing that people are trying to do with this idea about the death toll, getting this death toll up to 100 million, which was the, the ambition of the, the Black Book of Communism, it was a desperate attempt to, to get to 100 million. The actual figure of excess deaths by most historians is around 9 million over maybe 30 years, 35 years. That's, you know, there's still 9 million people too many, if that's excess deaths. But um, it's it's a complete estimate. It's very difficult to to get these figures. Um, some people have, have, have done things like they've looked at the, the birth rate and said, well, looked at the population and said, well, we think the birth rate should be this and we think the death rate should be that and therefore the population should have another 5 million in. So that's 5 million chalked up against Stalin that he's some, somehow executed without anyone knowing it happened or anything, but just, just sort of interpolated from the, the birth, what, what the birth rate and death rate were somehow supposed to be. Um, and there's a real, I think the agenda there is, it's all to do with the Holocaust, isn't it? There's firmly fixed in the public imagination is the Holocaust, it's Hitler killed six million. Um, of course, um, Hitler, Hitler killed six million, or the, the, the Nazi regime killed six million in a specific way in, in, the, in the final solution programme um, with the concentration camps and the death camps and, and everything else. But when people are adding up the deaths that they want to attribute to communism, then they don't just count that kind of a of a death um, or executions or capital punishment or anything. They count people that died, everyone that died in the Second World War. <laughs> Basically, everyone on the Eastern Front, whether they were German or Soviet, both get added to the death toll, but they, they're not in Hitler's death toll. Yeah, and if, of course, they also add to get to this enormously high number, um, you know, and again, no one's saying these famines and, and the the reorganization of farming from the historical context trying to get through like yes there 
that's that's an ugly history. Uh, but those get added as well, and and yeah. when usually when you're arguing this as well. Sure, and it's it's. Um, I mean, the famines. There, there were famines. Obviously, the, you know, there's a history of famines in Russia from before the revolution and and after the revolution. It was a very backwards country. Um, often, there, you know, it's not just that if if, a, if crops failed and things, but or, well, it was usually obviously a famine usually involves crops failing, but it's not just the impact of that, but things like the infrastructure for transportation meant that it wasn't that easy to get, but, um, and and the administrative capabilities, it wasn't that easy to um, distribute food to the areas where where it was really needed. But also there is, you know, there's this argument that some of this, um, some some of the deaths from famine were caused either deliberately as some kind of a a political punishment for certain regions or just by the just rank incompetence on behalf of the regime. Well, even if you include all of those, then you you need to start looking at global capitalism and look at the nine million people or seven, eight, nine, according to different estimates, people who starve to death every year under global capitalism. Now, they're not dying because we don't have enough food. They're dying because the food that we have is in the wrong place. We throw away 28% of the food we produce and uh, a large amount of the food that we don't throw away, we feed it to animals so that we can have high-protein meat in our diets. Well, you know, I'm not saying everyone... (laughs) This isn't like a judgmental thing. I'm not saying we shouldn't eat meat, although I don't. But we, but the point is, if you're going to talk about the deaths through the misallocation of resources in the Soviet Union, then you need to look at the deaths through misallocation of resources in other situations as well. And you need to think, what you know, what are we doing in the world where millions of people starve to death every year while we're throwing away a quarter of the food that we grow? It's uh, it's it's not comparing like with like. And and the 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 thing is, the the real kind of central point is, of this is that Hitler, obviously, apart from people that are really strange everyone puts Hitler everyone knows Hitler's on the right <laughs> and Stalin's kind of on the on the left and we have a lot of those strange people about though right, I, I know I I, I'm, I mean I, socialism's I, right in the name right it's right in the I, national, exactly so, yes. yeah I mean <laughs> obviously it's, yeah so it's, like like democracy is in a democratic is in the name of North Korea oh correct um, but, but suddenly they don't want to they don't they don't want to take it according to the name then but I think um the, oh, sorry, I've just lost. lost yeah, I've done that. I, I'm sorry. You're 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 putting the the Hitler on the right end of the spectrum. So yes. So so but these right wing conservatives, the, the uh, commentators, they they are desperate to have somebody on the left who's worse than Hitler, because uh, and you can you know and to some extent it's working. And for so long in the post war period, being a Nazi was kind of the worst thing you could be. If you called somebody a Nazi, I mean, it got, it got overused maybe a lot in the kind of the 80s it became just fascist was just a thing that people said to describe anyone they didn't like but but for decades before that you know it was kind of it was it was a terrible thing if somebody was described as a nazi then that was a terrible thing uh, in most of the kind of the western world and they've now kind of got to the point where that isn't it isn't as uniquely bad as it used to be because they've you know um, in those circles if you if if you say you're even if you suggest maybe we should have a higher minimum wage, then suddenly then that's, well, that's socialism and that's communism and that's Marxism and Stalin and gulags and 100 million dead and that's the end of the argument. And, you know, it's um, it's a way of shutting down debate by trying to have a, as big a bogeyman that the left have to somehow justify or defend as um, Hitler is on the right. Yeah, it's kind of given away in the clip because uh, another uh, analyst, uh, Joy Reid is her name, says... Um, yeah, well, what are we going to do the first time, you know, they bring up a video of, and I, and, and I think there has been stories of, of Bernie Sanders uh, in Nicaragua, um, supporting the leftists in Nicaragua, and so it's like, it's a political, it's just a political game, it's not, it's, 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 an, ahist- it's an ahistoric, one-sided political game. Yes, and it, and it relies on the fact that people generally don't know a lot, you know, a lot, a lot of the stuff about um, the Soviet Union. Most people don't have much of a, an interest in or an idea about Soviet history. So when when it's kind of you know, outside of kind of discussions among people that are interested in these things, it's a very easy thing. If they keep saying it enough, then it it filters through into the into the public imagination. And you can see, you know, social media. You only have to go and say anything vaguely lefty, and some some guy will come along and talk about hundred million deaths. And you know, the guy's just 
heard it somewhere, but he's heard it a lot. That's that's the tactic is to say the same thing over and over again. Yeah, I mean, I just think about, um, you know, and some of them, a lot of them have been so recent. You know, there's video of, you know, Allende's, uh, you know, the, the president's uh, building being blown up in Chile. Um, you know, what's, what's happened in Iran. Uh, you know, just the different the coups and, and, and then the regimes that come after the coups, Pinochet being a, a good example. Uh, I don't know. Do those count against capitalism or no? I never know. Like, it's never clear to me. Like, how do we what counts? What doesn't count? Well, it's, exactly. That's that's the problem is that nobody is ever clear about what counts and what, what doesn't count. Because if you if you were to count the, the, the deaths of, from capitalism in the way that they count the deaths from communism, then you have to include everybody that died in both world wars. You have to, you know, they, they count basically everybody that died in Vietnam in the Vietnam War because the Soviet Union were were backing one side. Well, America were backing the other side, guys. So it wasn't. You can't just lay all those deaths at the, at the foot of foot of communism. Yeah, and 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 uh, and plenty of uh, plenty of genocides too, uh, in, in, yes. North, in North America especially, and yeah. that was just for free real estate. So yeah. You know, I, well, I think as well, and something we'll probably get onto later is part of my part part of the argument that I'm making in the book is that um, there's there are a lot of comparisons between Marx's explanation of the emergence of capitalism in England from kind of 1500 to 1850, say, and the um, and what happened in the Soviet Union or, or in Russia and the Soviet Union from from kind of the 1860s in Russia with the emancipation of the serfs up to the 1890s. So when you look at that, you know, Russia was going through those same processes that had happened in England in, in a, a, few, a few hundred years earlier. And they were brutal processes in England. It's going to be a brutal process. When you rip the peasantry from the land that they believe is theirs, then they're not just going to go quietly and, and you know, and you're going to, going to need to use brutal methods. And that is what happens when any country starts to industrialise. Before it can industrialise, it needs an agricultural revolution. And it needs an army of kind of landless labourers. And, and that requires taking the peasants off the land. And they don't like it, understandably. <laughs> and yeah, so I mean, that's, that's why you get this kind of brutality. So you have to yeah. force these these methods through. So, um, well, I mean, we can go, go kind of more into, into that a bit later. Yeah, I, I think we can. I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's that's a great way. That's how I sort of frame it in my mind, reading your book and others about this topic is, you know... The, the, the historical condition was coming out of feudalism into capitalism, which takes you know a couple hundred years or more, probably. Um, so that that move just happens different in different places for different reasons, and and certainly is going to set the conditions for what can happen and what can't happen. It's not determinative, but it's it's certainly important. And that's really the the thesis of the book. I, I would say is is understanding that gives you an understanding of the. Of the process as history as a, a process um economic factors social conditions that sh you know shape the intermediate step you know you go from a to c but you go through b in some fashion that's how you have to get there yeah i mean marx was very he, he was very clear that that you can't have socialism until you've had capitalism which is why he why why they why why the soviet union if the soviet union had succeeded there's a bit in the book where i said if the soviet union had succeeded then socialists would have been happy with that, and obviously Marxists would have been happy with that too. But actually, Marxists would have had to admit that Marx got his theory of history wrong, because he 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 said they didn't, they couldn't succeed, and you can't have socialism until you've had capitalism, because capitalism is the only thing that's capable of building this massive increase in productive capacity and providing us with um, with with this abundance that we need for socialism. Capitalism is great for growth. And, and I saw there was an interview actually on the BBC yesterday with them um, talking about the COP26 that's going on in Scotland at the moment. Um, and the and uh, George Monbiot, an environmentalist um, commentator, was, was saying, look, you know, we're basically explaining to, to the panel that we have to get our heads out of this, this permanent growth idea. And, and the, the rebuttal was, yes, but look at capitalism. Isn't it great? It's, it's given us all this growth and it's brought millions of people out of poverty and it's created all this productive capacity. And, and Marx would be nodding along with that and saying, yes, that is true, that capitalism has done that. But A, there's been a lot of suffering that's come with that too. That didn't come for free. That came with, there was a lot of blood, sweat and tears that came along with that. But also that doesn't mean that we have to go on with capitalism forever. The, the point of that, you know, 
that yes, we needed we needed to get to a position where we have enough stuff. And once you get to a position where you have enough stuff, then you need a system which is actually capable of distributing it so that nine million people don't starve to death every year. And, yeah. and capitalism isn't there. And so that we don't kill the planet. We need to, to, to kind of alter production so that we can we can kind of still have somewhere, a planet to live on in a, in a hundred years' time. But capitalism can't do that because capitalism is incapable of addressing those goals, the, the, the lower growth, the, the, the environmental requirements and the um, redistribution of the, this enormous amount of, of stuff that we are now capable of producing. Rather than feed all those starving people, we now have companies making the Danny DeVito celebrity prayer candle. You know? Yeah, it's a distribution. What's that about? What's... Yeah, we got a, I think the, the important point and the way that I sort of describe it to people is, and, and, and we sort of have to grasp this to have a fair argument, is that capitalism distributed the resources properly to give us the abundance, exactly as you said. Um, but now we've gone, now we're doing the, the, the Danny DeVito devotive candle and, you know, and, uh, you know, millions of people are dying of starvation every year. So something, something's amiss. Um, but I, I wanted to read this because I think this is a good way to at least put a little context that people might be more familiar with about this switch from what we have been doing had its day, but now we have to do it differently. Um, so this is FDR um, in 1912. So FDR was just elected to the New York State Senate. Uh, this is pre-polio, pre-stock you know, uh, market crash, all of that. Um, and this is just one of uh, his early uh, political speeches. And I just wanted to read a few excerpts from it because I think it illustrates some of these, some of these ideas. For nearly 1,000 years in almost every European and American country, the struggle to obtain individual freedom has been the great and fundamental question in the economic life of the people. The Reformation, for instance, and the Renaissance in Europe are not too commonly regarded, are, not, are too commonly regarded as religious or educational struggles and have not, by the teachers of history, been sufficiently explained as efforts on the part of the various peoples affected to obtain individual liberty. In the same way, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and at a later date, the general European uprisings of 1848. During the past century, we have acquired a new set of conditions which we must seek to solve. To put, it, to put it in a simplest form and fewest words, I have called this new theory the struggle for liberty of the community, rather than liberty of the individual. When all is said and done, every new doctrine which had been advanced in the last 50 years comes under this definition. Every new star that people have hitched their wagons for, to in the past half century, whether it be anti-rebating, or antitrusts, or new-fashioned education, or conservation of our natural resources, or state regulation of common carriers, or commission government. Any of the 1,001 other things that we have run after as of late, almost without any exception, come under the same heading. They are all steps in the evolution of the new theory of liberty of the community. The socialist has at times called this same thing community interest, and some sounding orators have called it the brotherhood of man, Neither of these expressions is possible to use anywhere outside of heaven. For community of interest at once suggests to the mind a kind of happy condition where everybody wants the same thing and everybody gets it. This is comparatively recent doctrine, but at least uh, the liberty of the individual has been obtained and we must face new theories. To state it plainly, competition has been shown to be useful up to a certain point. But cooperation, which is the thing that we must strive for today, begins where competition leaves off. This is what the founders of the Republic were groping for. And then it closes like this. There is, to my mind, no valid reason why the food supply of the nation should not be put on the most economical and at the same time most productive basis by carrying out cooperation. If we call the method regulation, people hold up their hands in horror and say, un-American or dangerous. But if we call the same identical process cooperation, these old fogies will cry out, well done. It may seem absurd to call the rebating formerly done by railroads and the great trust, so-called, minor issues. But after all, rebating was discrimination, and the doctrine of cooperation came with it. The same with trusts. They were and are run on the theory of monopoly. But cooperation puts monopoly out of date, 
and we now understand that the mere size of a trust is not necessarily its evil. The trust is evil because it monopolizes for a few, and as long as this keeps up, it will be necessary for a community to change its features. And I, 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 uh, I was just given that book uh, by the historian Harvey J.K., uh, he edited. I heard him on your program recently. Oh, cool. Yeah, it, it was interesting. I wanted to ask you a little bit later, maybe a little about uh, Jerry Cohen, because Harvey J. K., Harvey J. K.'s um, sort of advisor and mentor was uh, Hobsbawm, and his his first big book was uh, the British Marxist Historian. So it's uh, uh, E. P. Thompson, Hobsbawm, and all that. And Chris so, Hill. yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, he's. Uh, it's interesting how these are uh, kind of these roads are. Uh, coming together once again, he gave me uh, a book of these speeches and mentioned this speech to me, so I read it, and I said, this, it seemed to me FDR sort of trying to articulate in an American sense this idea that, and he says it, competition has done what it's going to do, doesn't, make really a, doesn't really make a judgment of it, but now we need a new sort of theory. Yeah. So yeah, That's, I just a, that's like, a great phrase that um, cooperation takes over where, where competition leaves off. Yes. And I, I was, so I was just wondering uh, what you thought about that excerpt and also how it might relate to the what I think is sort of the foundational element of the book, that um, history is a, a, is a process. Uh, yeah. And then we can sort of talk about a few more details and specifics. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think I mean, it was a good I, it was a really, really good um, excerpt there from uh, FDR. And I think he's really grasped that um, that process, that concept that is really central to Marx, that that we have um you know that history moves forward and, and we're going to go through different stages and they're not you know they're not um uh, as firmly defined as as sometimes um we like to imagine there, there's there, you know that it's almost as if we're almost always in transition by the time one stage is kind of we never reach the the ideal we, we never got to the ideal type of you know the not i don't mean ideal as in the desirable but as in the ideal typical you know what we do if you write down you know a definition of capitalism there would be kind of you know ultimate competition and no state involvement and that kind of thing we never really got there but because by the time the state had stopped well it still hasn't the state is still helping capitalists and everything but then we've also got the state we've got welfare systems and in the uk we've got the nhs and, and lots of the world there are, you know there are, there are the state does a lot of good stuff for it's pop the, the populations that it's that it's supposed to be doing even more for. So we've we've already started to move towards a situation where you know away from some of the worst excesses of capitalism. I know it doesn't um, feel like that often, especially in the UK and the US, where we seem to be going backwards. But many places in the world, you know, they referenced um, on the, the clip about Bernie. They referenced Denmark. There are places. There are places in the world where people are looking forward to looking at shorter working weeks. And you know, in, there's lots of little things all over the world. In, in Germany and Sweden, there are rules that mean that employees have to every, every board of companies over a certain number of employees has to have workers on the on the board of directors and that kind of thing. So. You know, and, and in the UK, we have had the NHS, although it's under threat now, you know, in, in various places, there are, there, there are different things. So we're starting, you know, there are, there are kind of shoots there that these are things which may at some point, whenever we do kind of hit that transition into socialism, some of these ideas are things that, that might take us forward. So there are experiments in that direction. And yet we've still kind of got feudal hangovers as well. So it's not the case that we, we kind of have capitalism up to this particular particular day and then as from as from that you have socialism and i think to some extent as well um that goes in with things like the idea of the um i i realize that i'm going off, off track from your your actual your right. question with fdr but I'll, i will circle back around to that i think um something else that i i try to emphasize in the book as well is that we need to get out of our heads the idea that a revolution is all, always um, involves um, manning the barricades and seizing the storming the Winter Palace and um, or storming the Bastille or whatever. We have these; these are really political upheavals. And if you if you read if you, if you want to take Marx's view on things, then the the actual revolution is the transformation of, of economic structure from one economic structure to another. And that typically, you know, that does take hundreds of years. The political things that we often call revolutions or that the establishment spends ages pretending isn't a revolution, such as the English Revolution, which we're, we're always taught as the English Civil War at school. But, 
Um, Marxists always view it as the English Revolution. Um, these things were, but these were like political flashpoints. This was the political, the, the economic change had, change had happened and a new group of people had now got enough power, economic power and enough clout to, to basically, they, they should be running the show. And, the, and these, these seizures of political power happened because they'd already got the economic power. This is like the last act of the, of the revolutionary phase is, is this change of personnel. And there's, it's not necessarily the case that that, might, that would always have to be done through bloodshed, you know, it, it may well have been in the past, but it doesn't, you know, that isn't a, a kind of a, a requirement of a revolutionary um, transition. So I think we, we there's, a, there's a lot of different ways we can look at this, um, you know, we, we, can t- we, we need to take a much broader view of what we think of as a revolution and that kind of thing, which, and that then informs some of the argument about, um, that I'm making about what's happening in the Soviet Union. So then to, to, to circle back to, to your FDR quote, um, I think what the, the, when he talks about the rise of the individual, that's really he's talking about capitalism. Right. And, yeah, I, and, I, I guess I kind of mentioned he's he's um, he's using the the, the 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 political rhetoric. But, yes, yeah. that you can you can overlay, um, you know, a, a Marxist analysis right over top of it almost. Yeah, sure. And he. he um this, the, you know, the, the capitalist revolutions, which you know, the French Revolution and the, the English Civil War, they they were basically removing regimes where the individual wasn't wasn't rec- recognised in the way that it has to be under capitalism. So, um, under under pre-capitalist regimes, social structures were such that your rights were different if you held a certain social position. You're, you know, everything was different. It wasn't ownership was different. Ownership meant a different set of things under feudalism than it does under capitalism. And under capitalism, it's very individualistic, individual-centric kind of idea about own, ownership and what ownership means. Um, and But it's also those, however much we can, we can point to the hypocrisy of it, the, those things like the um, US Declaration of Independence and the French Declaration of um, the Rights of Man of the Citizen, they put individuals at, at the, the their individualist documents. All men are created equal, you know. And that once you st- obviously that that literally excluded women, and actually they didn't really mean all men because they didn't count non-white men as being as being men. But what they what they were getting at was that there is no just because you have some, you know, it doesn't matter who your dad was, doesn't matter what you, what family you're from, you don't get a different set of rules for you. Um, and although although that's quite you know we, it's very easy to look at capitalism and say well that didn't <laughs> that isn't how it works and that, and that's true but in terms of the rules that have been brought in obviously you know capitalism we, we can all you know come up with a critique of capitalism but we also have to recognize that it has moved things forward as compared to feudalism and in one of the ways that it's done that is that people now you know we get one vote each so in the US and the UK, that we've got crappy electoral systems. I mean, they're of different values. But in, in most countries that came, that, you know, devised their electoral system a bit later, they've, they've got a reasonable system and everybody gets one vote and that, that counts the same. So, yes, of course, there's loads of problems with the way, the way political parties are financed and that kind of thing. But, but just that recognition that you are worth one vote and that's the same whether you're the son of a duke or the son of a dustman, that is... That is something that is a, an achievement of capitalism, even even where it's not, you know, upheld. It's still just the idea of it is something that just didn't exist in 1600, and it and it does exist now. And that is that individual, that emphasis on the individual, is something about is something that is part of the the whole kind of capitalist ideology. And I think that's where, just to go on another little diversion, there's there's um, there's a when you when we look at the kind of the um, the difference between socialists and and, and liberals at, at the moment or centrists, what centrists tend to do is call out capitalism on that hypocrisy. Centrists will point to all the rules in capitalism, which say men shouldn't be paid more than women, or black people shouldn't be shot more by, by the police than white people, and they'll say, "Look, you're not living up to this. This is this is this is your hypocrisy. We we must fix these things." And yes, of course, we must fix those things. But socialists will also then add, even when we fix those things, we, we then we then we've then got the really big task of addressing the economic inequalities and, and those those structural 
problems about who owns what and what ownership means and how ownership works and why most people are excluded from any ownership of any productive resources. So there's this kind of, and really that's that's where FDR is in that speech. He's saying, okay, we've got this. Obviously, even in 1912, they got it even less. It, it, women didn't even have the vote at that point. And, and many men were still excluded from the vote in, in the UK then on, on, on property qualifications. So he's kind of jumping the gun a little bit. But, but, but even though, and since then, there's been loads of, loads of legislation in both countries that, that, um, that, that make things legally less discriminatory against women and black people and various other groups. We st- obviously we've still got a long way to go before that is, um, you know, before that we can we can kind of feel that we've achieved that. But for socialists, there's still that's the end of okay, that's the point where 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 your your liberal capitalist ideology ends, and now we need to do the real job, which is which is the hard work of, of redistributing the resources. Yeah, I mean those the, <clears throat> those are the big topics which I'm glad that you touched on, and I just want to hit them before we move on to a question I have about um, the ownership of the means of production, uh, but how it's sort of played in the gig economy, whatever you want to call it. But um, number one, that that it, the revolution is a uh, is a, a, a hundreds of years process that. Will I mean it will be violent at some points that historically seemed accurate, but it, it's not inherently like an uprising like as as people would think. I think that that's a huge um, thing for people to think about, and 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 also that as FDR says, as Marx himself said, and as you summarized, um, capitalism was necessary. Like it, it, it did need. We needed to, you know, we needed to rearrange the feudal system to get enough resources out to do something. And now we have to do something else. So that that recognition, I don't know if a lot of people that would call themselves maybe progressive or even leftist now sort of make that move. But I think it's an important one historically to understand. I think so, and I, I think it's almost. And and um, I know people that would lynch me for saying this, but I think there's a. We can recognise as well there's a continuity between capitalism and socialism. You know, there's capitalism gets rid of, although it introduces a load of stuff we don't like, it gets rid of a load of stuff we we, we don't like even more. And um, there's 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 that thing about although and and although it doesn't live up to it, it, in in practice, the in, in ideological terms, this focus on equality is something that was really new at that time. Nobody in the kind of ancient regime and in, you know, in Stuart, Tudor and Stuart England, equality wasn't a thing. You know, there were, there were in this, and we can, we can talk about this a bit maybe as well, if you like, that, you know, there were radical groups in the English civil war that, that, that favoured um, equality, the levellers and the diggers and people like that. But, but in, you know, in the, in the mainstream, mainstream thought, equality wasn't a thing. So, so even though capitalism has often failed to deliver it, deliver it, it has delivered to some extent. It has, you know, there's there's a there are rules that you can't. I don't know about the states in the UK. You can't you can't pay a, a man and a woman a different rate for doing the same job. You you know, there are cases where that's not uh, not always a perfect thing. But you certainly can't advertise a job and say well, if a man gets it, he'll get five grand more than a woman. That's you know. Whereas it, before you could you could do what you liked before capitalism came along, you could. You, you know, it, there was no kind of concept that you must at least show some some you you must even pay lip service to equality all of the you know the doctrine of divine right of divine right of kings and the great chain of being and things these were enshrined in in, in the way people thought and they were specifically anti-equality so and capitalism isn't in, it doesn't concern itself with genuine equality that socialists favor which is equality of access to resources and, and and particularly to the means of production but it does insist that on equality of something and that means that 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 then means that in, in an ideological discussion then then instead of saying you know equality is bad we're not having that capitalists have to justify why equality before the law and an equal vote is a good thing but equality of resources is a bad thing if equality is so great that we must have equality before the law then why is it so evil that we can't possibly have a quality of access to opportunity? And that makes it for, you know, that make that kind of takes the, 
the rug out from under their argument to some extent. So I think there is that you can see that kind of a you can see capitalism and socialism both as kind of two stages in the whole Enlightenment project. We're moving away from religiously dominated societies to societies. Well, sometimes it doesn't feel like it in the UK or or watching the US news, but where rationality should at least dictate. And and we're moving from superstition and religion to rationality and and equality and justice. And and capitalism has has helped with that. It's, you know, like you say... It it introduced the concept. I mean, as as I, I think that's the thing that I take away from it is that not just the distribution of resources needed for the abundance, but also it... It, it it quite literally introduced the concept that like there was some sort of equality among people that walked around like and and again it wasn't applied uh it's still not always applied fairly but it that but even just the concept never existed before <laughs> that you know so and i think you can it, and it's not a coincidence either capitalism needs this um, I now well, I say it's not a coincidence, but not neither is it a kind of a plan cooked up in a smoky back room. But but it it's not a coincidence that this um, this idea of equality goes along with capitalism because one of the things that was holding capitalism back was the fact that people you know capitalism requires investments. Where in the early days of capitalism, you know canals, bridges, build, you know building ships to go off and steal stuff from all over the world. This kind of thing requires an investment. And if, if you're in this kind of, you know, Tudor England, then you, is it, there's a real barrier to you making that investment because when you finish making the investment, it's perfectly fine if the king or the queen or, or the local kind of person a few steps up the ladder above you just says, actually, yeah, I've, I've got a mate who wants to use that canal now that you've spent all your money building and you're not going to be able to put a toll on there and recoup your money because I'm giving it to my mate. And... And justice was arbitrary. Justice was usually locally administered, but even a, you know, if you were if you were rich enough, then you might get get something heard at a national level. But it was it was up to whatever the guy felt like that day. Now it it sometimes feels a bit like that in a magistrate's court now, but it, but but literally people were making it up as they went along. And so if you're in a contract dispute with somebody, and that however right you are, you. you you're probably going to come out and if, you, if the guy doesn't like you, you're not going to get, get any success, then that inhibits your willingness to invest in stuff. And so this idea that everybody is equal, that, that because somebody is a duke, he shouldn't get um, favourable treatment to you, that is a that is something, I mean, I'm really paraphrasing here because I, yeah. <laughs> I haven't got all, all night to talk about this, but that kind of idea, that that kind of, um, you know, there were that was one element, one of the ways in which feudal society stood in the way of, capitalism developing was that it, it was a real hindrance to I mean Queen Elizabeth was handing out monopolies left right and center as kind of favors and rewards and all that kind of thing so whereas capitalist competition is much more efficient than that and the person who's best at doing it so long as best in the criteria for best is that they can make a load of money but the person that at least is efficiently doing it is the one that gets the job not the person that the, you know the queen wants a favor from or, or wants to reward in some way yeah, I, I think the, the the way you framed it is the best way. I mean, we've done the equality, the concept, maybe legally. Um, you know, we're, we're certainly far better than even maybe 50 years ago. But now we have to start moving to equality in, in resources and just a more, I guess, what FDR would say, cooperative sort of just concept in the progress of history. Um, I, I wanted to talk before we go a little bit, I know this is like a sticky subject because I wanted to just introduce sort of this class idea um, and whether e- whether the, I mean, it, I do find it as a handy, it's a nice shorthand to sort of talk about the economic relationships that people have, but I don't know whether how f- useful the, it is anymore. Um, and I also wanted to talk about, um, you know, I guess people would talk about owning the means of production uh, whether you're uh, a wage laborer or you own something, and then this this sort of uh, bastardization of it or riddle in it is this gig economy. So you have Uber, you have Lyft, you have uh, Deliveroo, you have DoorDash, all of these um, different places. So the argument is that, well, you, you own your car and you own the stuff that you're using to do the thing. You know, are you, do you own your means of production? Now, I've Obviously, I would say no for different reasons, but I'd like you to sort of uh, elaborate on that because it's a sort of a weird uh, twist. 
Yeah. Well, I th- you know, Marx talks about it in terms of um, 19th century weavers in the putting out system who might own some of their own means of production, um, which normally would... So I guess to back up a little bit, so the the in, in, in general conversation when we talk about class, we you know, it can, it can include any kind of... Um, how much money people have got, what education they've got, what kind of car they drive. Any, it's often in general conversation. It class is this kind of bundle of cultural signifiers that that we make assumptions about people and how they might behave or where they might have grown up or or whatever based on these things. You know these these signifiers. But um, at least on one level, when Marx talks about class, he talks about class as being um, the it's solely defined by your relationship to the means of production. And he's really doing this from a historical point of view because he's trying to draw out the distinction between the proletarian proletariat under capitalism and pre-capitalist workers under feudalism and various post-feudal systems. And so in those systems, the workers often had some kind of um, claim to some of the means of production they used, whereas capitalism sweeps that away. So in in um, in England, in the in the process went through with eviction and enclosure, so people were evicted from the, from the land that they'd worked on for generations, and then in, the, the, literally the land was enclosed. Um, and there were two big kind of periods of this: one in the Tudor period, and then parliamentary enclosure in the eighteenth and nineteenth century. Um, and in my book, I'm arguing um, that that's a very similar situation in, in under collectivization. That's ticking the same boxes in the how are we ready for capitalism yet checklist that Marx kind of puts out that, that collectivization does the same, same thing in, in Russia um, in the 1930s. But I think the, the, so Marx uses this idea of this totally landless labourer as being, this is, this is what allows capitalism to capitalism to flourish because they're not partly because they're the means of, if you owned any means of production as an agricultural producer, you were kind of stuck to the land and you couldn't really move anywhere. So there are all kinds of um, rules and customs that would, would prevent you moving anywhere as well. But there's also this, you're physically kind of attached to the land. If you're cultivating land, you can't just go and work somewhere else. And um, one of the things that Marx says is getting rid of that situation. So you've got all these landless labourers. They, they can now go to wherever the work is. So, Somebody finds a coal seam, you can get loads of miners there. You know, somebody needs a water mill, you can get lo- lo- loads of mill workers there. This, this, so it goes in hand in hand with industrialization as well. It's this, this landlessness. You have nothing but your labour power. And you because you've got nothing, you have to sell your labour power in order to survive. And then there's this kind of... Um, and then the, the, So the, the opposing class to that is the bourgeoisie who own all the means of production and they live off other people, off employing other people. And then this, this, there's this sort of intermediate class called the petty, there are a number of intermediate classes, but one of them is the petty bourgeoisie who may own some means of production, but not enough to live on. So they still have to work. They probably don't employ anyone. And then the, you, there's this question about, like you say, the Uber driver or the Deliveroo guy or, or all, this, all these people in the gig economy. Do they, are they not now proletarians because they own um, some of their means of production? And Marx compares this to these weavers in the putting out system that they own some of their means of production. And the argument really is that they would still count as proletarians because they, they, their ownership isn't real, is it? They, they, they are in disguised employment. In effect, they're in a job, but they're in a job with such low kind of power. They're, 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 they, they lack they lack, lack any kind of power in the workplace. And so they're in a job where not only is the, the paying conditions terrible, but they're forced to buy their own stuff as well. And that, you know, that's 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 true of the, the, the weavers in the 19th century. It's true when I was working on building sites, most of the or many of the um, uh, tradesmen there were subbies, sub, subcontractors. And that was a whole system just designed. So because the employer then you get the guy turning up nine to five every day or eight to four every day or whatever. But you don't have to pay any holiday pay. You don't have to pay any sick pay. You don't have to, you know, you, you don't have any responsibilities. He has to buy his own tools. If he if he's off sick, that's his problem, not your problem. All that kind of stuff. And I think this is the same now with the with the gig economy. It's it's just it's disguised employment, isn't it? It's they you are they they don't have to give you any notice when they want to get rid of you. They don't have to pay you any redundancy pay. They they just it's just employers absolving themselves of all the gains that we won in the post war period 
in terms of workers' rights. I, I know they're they're less in the states than they are here, but we, you know, we every job here, if it's full time job, is you get five and a half weeks holiday every year. You get an, an entitlement to maternity leave, and you get sick pay. And you know, once you've been there two years, they have to pay you redundancy pay if they get rid of you. All this kind of stuff. And, and if if they sack you for no reason, then you can go to an employment tribunal. They can't. They can't just decide they don't like the look of you one day and sack you they they can only get rid of you if you if you do something that you know bad for the company um and i realize that's <laughs> that's the yeah well yeah and i can tell you there to some extent for, for employees but they're not there for people like gig workers because yeah. they are they, they are in in fact they are employees and they are proletarians but in theory they are um self-employed businessmen who are who who are entering a contract every day and you know they take it on the chin if they're ill and they can't work yeah it's a it's a contractor bringing their tools to work you know whatever you want to however you want to uh to sort of use that model i think that that uh, that's exactly what it is and the fact that their boss is an algorithm on their phone uh doesn't really change the dynamic of it i don't think yeah I mean, I can remember carpenters getting that they they would get I mean, they not only did they have to provide their own tools, but they had to buy them off the company. So they would have an amount deducted from their wages every week, and and that went to that that went to pay for their tools, which they then had to buy off the company. And so you know, it's... well, I, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, the 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 job you've been doing lately, or at least uh, some of the time. I guess just in the summertime, you won't be doing it soon, but so. You're setting up these uh, these big screens at cricket grounds, and you are a cricket fan, so you get to go to the ground, set the thing up, and then just hang out there during the during the cricket. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's a job. I've been, I've known the guy who has this company for a long time, and I've always said to him, if if, if you get a vacancy, <laughs> then I'm having it. And they haven't got a vacancy because no one's going to leave a job like that. But um, I mean, it's short term. You've got to be able to work around it. You have other stuff to do in the winter, kind of thing. But yeah. Um, what's happened with because of the introduction of the hundred tournament, there are a lot more televised matches. This only happens at televised matches because it's advertising for TV. Right. Um, so they needed more people to cover all the grounds. And I, you know, I I said going in, ideally, I don't want to go to the hundreds. I'd, I'd much rather. <laughs> you, we, we had a we had a conversation about this over email. I mean, twenty 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 is pushing it for me. Yeah. Well, I think and the hundred is a complete waste of time. So yes, um, agree. But I think the, the yeah, and the other good thing about a test match, apart from the fact it's proper cricket and it's much better atmosphere and everything else, is that it's it's five days. So you have a hard graft day set up beforehand, and you have a de-rig day afterwards, which is pretty hard graft after the match. But then you get five days of literally being paid to watch cricket. You've got to be there because if somebody smashes the ball, these th- things are the sight screen. When they're not an advert, they're turning around and they're the sight screen. Oh, they're the ones in the – because I know they had the, the sight screen ones go in and out when the, when they change ends. Yes, exactly. That's the ones. So, yeah, yeah. so we have to be there. And it, because if somebody smashes a ball into it and breaks one of the blades, then then it needs mend. The, the game can't carry on until until yeah. that's mended. It's never happened the, when I've been there. But you've <laughs> got to be there in case. So you're, yeah. you're getting paid, you're getting put up in a hotel, you're getting all your meals and everything for literally – watching the cricket that other people are paying hundreds of quid to go and, you know, I can afford to go and watch the game. If I was that's, a, that's, the, that's great. I'm going to look at, at all the matches I watch that are going to, that are uh, televised from England uh, next summer. I'm going to see if you ever are walking next to the sight screen and they have to wave you. They have to, they, and they always put the camera on, get out of the way. They always show the person that's get out. But uh, yeah, I, somebody, isn't it? yeah, and it's always they're always like lost. They're coming. They're like they had like beer. They, you know, they're always lost in some fashion. Like they don't realize they're standing in front of the sight screen. Um, yeah, I got into it later in life here because I had a lot of. Um, I mean, I followed the football, so I was always seeing uh, cricket highlights when I was you know maybe twenty years ago, and I never understood what it was, and I, I wanted to understand what it was. So some Pakistani colleagues of mine took time to like teach me the game. They had me come out to some park games. And uh, yeah, I got to play it for about ten years before I got too old to like run around. But yeah, it was a lot of fun, and I and I dig it. I, my wife and I have taken some some holidays that have been sort of built around um, going to see a day of the Test match. So we've been to Lord, yeah, we've been to Lords. We went to uh, Newlands in Cape Town because uh, we did a little tour of uh, the Western Cape. So yeah, it's just it's just fun. Uh, it's uh, something I find it extremely intriguing, like you said, with the Test match because it, it's uh, it's very different all the time. 
um, you know, it's ups and downs. Um, I'm yeah, hoping that you've, got, you've got five days invested in this game. By the t- by, the time it ends, you've been on this roller coaster for five days. Yeah, and exactly. I think one thing people, I think there's people that are not that don't follow cricket, whether it you know wherever they are. I think there's there's one um, misconception I think that people have about cricket. So you see it in a film, and it's always some kind of 1930s English private school. Um, cricket match and there's, the, yeah. there's the, like people are drinking tea and the vicar's there and everything but that, actually cricket is a really brutal sport it's yes it's you know i mean as far as i know in baseball you're not allowed to just aim the ball at the guy's head well if you hit the if you hit the batter in any yeah. fashion they get they they get to take a what is just like a base so it'd be like maybe right. taking a run or like something like right. that okay. yeah people don't understand that fast bowling at somebody's throat is like optimal like that's yeah, what you and that's, that's want to do. Completely accepted part of the game is that yeah. fast bowlers will try and scare the seven colours of something or other yeah. out of the batsman and intimidate them with the fact that they are in absolute kind of physical danger. And you know, I mean, unfortunately, that there was an Aussie guy a few years ago, wasn't there? Died. He, yeah, Philip Hughes. He, uh, he looked. Yeah. He kind of was following the ball and looked away at the last moment and hit him in the, just under the helmet behind his ear and. Yeah, him. he tried to he tried a pull shot and he was too early and yeah. uh, came went all the way around and hit him in the neck. Yeah, uh, and and they now have um, different. They've restyled the helmets to to protect yeah. that that area. But it is um, it's a, it, it's kind of a brutal sport and people don't. Um, I don't think people that don't play cricket or aren't involved in cricket kind of, it's got this image of being this kind of genteel thing from the 1930s. And actually, it's it's you know people are trying to hit you in the head. With yeah, a really and, hard ball at 90 miles an hour. The other thing I explain, and it's just a very easy concept you can tell when you're watching it, but in baseball, all of the fielders wear a glove. Uh, bigger bigger than what a wicketkeeper would wear. So like webbing and the whole, the whole deal. And so even in the park games that I would play in, you know, somebody some somebody drives one, you know, and you're at short cover. You just got to catch it with your hands. You got no chance. That's it. <laughs> I've broken all the fingers on my left hand and some of the ones on my right hand. Yeah, I've seen some mangled fingers out there too. When you try to take a catch, they get caught up underneath of you. But yeah, it's it's people don't sort of get the get the process of it. I mean, that's why I stopped playing. I I have like you can probably tell from my glasses, my eyesight is pretty poor and it's getting poorer as I get older. I bat right-handed and I. Uh, this young kid who's probably uh, like a, a, a Indian American kid's coming in. He's probably like 19 years old. Uh, he bowls a short one, uh, and I just remember dropping my hands and turning my head. And as I turn my head, I could hear it go by the ear hole of my helmet. Like you can hear it whiz. And I was like, "No, nah, that's it. I'm done." <laughs> so that was my retirement story. There's. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw. There was an article in Jacobin recently about um, some of the politics surrounding cricket. Um, and there's quite a lot there as well. There's quite a, you know, the uh, the history of cricket with um, the Dolavira yeah. affair, which wasn't mentioned actually in the um, uh, Jacobin article. No, that wasn't. But I mean, it came. It's just come to the surface again because uh, during the, the the BLM protest that started here, um, uh, kind of spilled over into cricket started back, starting back up in COVID. And Michael Holding, the famous um, Jamaican fast bowler for the West Indies. Um, and, and during a break, you know, sort of spoke very um, at length uh, and very passionately about this because that's another thing that's been coming out is a lot of these, I think Yorkshire had one, a lot of these reports coming around that these youth players uh, from abroad or whether they have, um, you know, uh, South Asian descent still get a lot of racism. So, yeah, I guess that's still um, the history, I guess, and even sort of some of the stuff that's going on now. Obviously, Holding said he never really... He never really, but I mean, if you're Michael Holding, who's going to say anything to? Yeah, it's, it's just takes you take somebody's head off the next day. There's um, a really so. good film actually, which you can see. I think it's probably free on YouTube, even called um, Fire, in, Fire Babylon. in Babylon. I've seen, seen it. Yeah, I have. I yeah. have. Uh, yeah. So I'm was, a little... that's about 1976. This series. Here, so I was 10 watching yeah. that series in England and watching. You know, and again, I didn't come to really cricket until later in life. So I saw that when it came out. Uh, knowing that the West Indies had this great team in the 70s, that's all right. I really knew yeah. because I didn't really even start following the history of cricket until maybe 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, so to watch that was was pretty neat. And I do um, know a little bit about um, at least Jamaican history because there was a, sort of a socialist movement there and they had big clashes right. in the 70s and everything. So it was really uh, interesting to see that um, documentary because it crossed over into um, 
you know, just different class and race uh, yeah. stuff even in, in the media as that as that series went on. Yeah. Yeah. There was a um, there used to be because the whole history of it with um, in the 19th century, 18th and 19th century, there used to be this thing about gentlemen and players. So the the the, the gentlemen were the amateurs who had a they were rich guys who had a private income, didn't need to get paid for playing the game. And then the the amateurs, sorry, the professionals were kind of looked down on. So they would they would have a different dressing room because they're working men. Um, so they're getting paid to play cricket because you know you, you can't just not go to you can't just spend all all your, all your life playing sport. And um, they would have a different dressing room. The captain would always be one of the gentleman amateurs and that kind of thing. And they used to have this fixture every year called the gentleman v players, but the players would always win it. So then the gentlemen would always borrow. We started borrowing two or three players from 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 the from the men and um they even got to the point at one point where they had um extra stumps when the when the gentlemen were bowling they, had like, <laughs> they got to bowl it they got the ball six four bales so five just so desperate win. and it's such a yeah. it's such a good like analogy for the way the ruling class behaves it's like, i had never i had never heard that a, on a level playing field, so we're just going to cheat. We're just gonna I had never it. heard that. The only thing I knew was, I, you know, like W.G. Grace, I knew was a doctor, so he was like a gent- cause he was part of that, like, you could just play because he had a, you know, a private income. And so I did know that there were, that there was this demarcation between the gentlemen and the players at the clubs in the 19th century and the early uh, 20th century, but I did up not know. the 60s. Oh, was it up to the 60s? Right, up to the 60s. That's, fu- that's, that's wild. That's wild stuff. Well, I, I, I want to thank you for coming in. Steve Paxton, uh, he's the author of Unlearning Marx, Why the Soviet Failure Was a Triumph for Marx. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I did too. Thanks. Thanks.